Well, if you consider a success, one being successful in one out of 200 conversations, then okay, I'm successful. But you can't give up in this game. Uh, most people are going to tell you your baby's not as pretty as you think it is or as beautiful as you think it is. And you just have to, you know, believe in yourself and believe in the story and not give up. Welcome to MedSider, where you can learn from the brightest founders and CEOs in medical devices and health technology. Join tens of thousands of ambitious doers as we unpack the insights, tactics, and secrets behind the most successful life science startups in the world. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with Dave Rosa, president and CEO of NeuroOne, who brings over three decades of experience in the medical device industry. His career spans several key roles at major firms like CR Bard, Boston Scientific, and St. Jude Medical, focusing on marketing, product development, strategy, and commercialization. Dave has several medical device patents under his name, has served on numerous corporate boards, and raised over $200 million in the capital markets. He holds an MBA from Duquesne University and a BS in Commerce and Engineering from Drexel University. Here are a few of the key things that we discussed in this conversation. First, securing initial capital requires more than just a great idea. You'll need tangible progress like prototypes and preclinical milestones. You can leverage local organizations and social media to target potential investors like angels, large companies interested in emerging technologies, and investors who already have a footprint in your domain. Second, embrace open communication for various purposes, including investment, consultation, and support. Surround yourself with a supportive and experienced team, including board members. Third, opt for shorter regulatory paths like the 510K to swiftly navigate through approvals. Focus on technologies with clear predicates to avoid regulatory complexities. Plan your timelines realistically, anticipating possible delays and iterations along the way. Before we jump into this episode, I wanted to let you know that the latest edition of MedSider Mentors is now live. Volume 4 summarizes the key learnings from the most popular MedSider interviews over the last several months with folks like Rob Ball, CEO of Shoulder Innovations, Kate Rumroll, CEO of Ablative Solutions, Dr. Christian Ramdo, CEO of Tempa Health, and other leaders of some of the hottest startups in the space. Look, it's tough to listen or read every MedSider interview that comes out, even the best ones. But there are so many valuable lessons you can glean from the founders and CEOs that join our program. So that's why we decided to create MedSider Mentors. It's the easiest way for you to learn from the world's best medical device and health technology entrepreneurs in one central place. If you're interested in learning more, head over to medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. Premium members get free access to all past and future volumes. And if you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. In addition to every volume of MedSider Mentors, you'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. You'll also be able to see all of our playbooks, which are hand-picked collections of the most insightful interviews with the brightest founders and CEOs. Whether you're looking to master capital fundraising, navigate early stage development, tackle regulatory challenges, understand reimbursement, or position your venture for a meaningful exit, MedSider Playbooks have you covered. And last, considering that fundraising can be one of the most daunting tasks for any startup, we created a meticulous database of investors right at your fingertips. Explore a wealth of VC funds, private equity firms, angel groups, and more, all eager to invest in medical device and health technology startups. Access to this database is a premium member exclusive, so don't miss out. Learn more about MedSider Mentors and our premium memberships by visiting MedSiderRadio.com forward slash mentors. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash mentors. All right, without further ado, let's jump right into the interview.
All right, Dave, welcome to MedSider Radio. Appreciate you coming on. Well, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and uh, for those listening, they can't see our Zoom call, but you're on brand with the NeuroOne logo front and center. I love it. So this should be a, a great discussion on kind of not only your your journey, right, through through MedTech. That's uh, You've got a lot, a lot of swings uh, kind of at, at the plate, but I'm curious to learn more about NeuroOne too um, and your your experiences uh, building this company as well. So with that said, I recorded your brief bio at the outset of this episode, uh, but we'd love to start there first. Uh, if you can kind of give us an elevator pitch, obviously not going through each and every sort of move you've made throughout your uh, your career in MedTech, but just give us kind of a high, high level sense of kind of what you've been doing uh, up to your time leading NeuroOne as CEO. Sure. So I'm, I'm kind of an older guy, uh, I'm 59 now. And uh, so I've, I've spent about 32 years going on 33 years in the, um, in the uh, med tech world. Uh, and I, I started uh, like many people do at the bottom, uh, was actually involved uh, in sales and uh, orthopedics. I've spent time in senior management roles in large companies, small companies, uh, but uh, primarily sales, marketing, and then have uh, also been involved in uh, companies that you know have been early startups uh, that weren't even at the stage where we had prototypes. So I've spent a fair amount of time as well um, in companies that were really in the uh, development or preclinical phase. And for the last, um, I'm losing track of time. The last 10, 15 years, uh, I've been in roles where you know I, I've honestly been. Uh, uh, excited to have an opportunity to to run an organization, and in some cases, really build it from the ground up. So um, that's a bit of my background. Yeah, and for those th- those that want to look a little bit more about um, the uh, the breadth of experiences that Dave you know has under his belt at this point, we'll definitely link to his LinkedIn profile in the full the full write up for this particular interview. Let's talk a little bit about NeuroOne before we kind of go back in time um, and and discuss you know some of the the key functional areas of any any medtech medtech startup has to has to kind of execute against. Give us a sense for kind of what the platform that and technologies that you're building at NeuroOne, and if you can kind of explain it to me as if I'm a I'm a freshman in high school. Maybe that's the best way to to uh, to frame that up. Yeah, it's about the only way I understand it. So uh, <laughs> this should work out well. Uh, basically, um, the company um, really evolved from a relationship with the Mayo Clinic and the University of Wisconsin. And both of those organizations for uh, 20, 20 plus years were trying to develop this thin film electrode technology that really originated in the 1950s um, to a point where it would be uh, much thinner, much lighter have improved resolution, uh, given that part of the function was for diagnostic use. And and that's kind of when I got uh, introduced to the company. The surgeries that were being done in epilepsy, uh, Parkinson's disease, you know, they're very invasive surgeries. You're either removing uh, a patient's top part of a skull, you're drilling holes into the brain. And this technology offered the promise uh, of being able to be placed minimally invasively because of its thinness and flexibility. And then also uh, because of its design uh, have improved resolution. What I found along the way was that uh, that really excited me and was probably the primary reason why I joined the company was that um, it had what I considered to be multiple capabilities. And what I mean by that was, you know, I thought this platform, this electrode platform could not only perform diagnostic uh, functions, which was really the initial intended purpose. It was supposed to be a, a better mousetrap of technology that 
had been available, you know, as I said, since the 50s. What it turned into was uh, a technology that had the capabilities of not only diagnosing problems in the brain or finding the problem areas, but then without having to send a patient home or have them come back for a separate surgery to then be used to perform the therapeutic function. So if you take the example of uh, epilepsy, what would normally happen is these patients would go home after the diagnostic surgery, come back, um, have a laser ablation where the laser would remove the problematic tissue. Uh, so a patient would have to undergo multiple surgeries. And no one, at least that I've met uh, over the last six years, has been excited about going in and having holes drilled into their brain or having uh, brain tissue destroyed. So what I felt we could offer to the table was a platform that not only performed the diagnostic function, but that could be left in to perform uh, the therapeutic function. And so, so the, the breadth of what we feel uh, very confident we can do is have a device, uh, again, that performs the diagnostics, that can do an ablation uh, in the brain or other parts of the body, as well as uh, provide stimulation. So that's that was really the goal that I set out, given what I had learned about the technology. So it, it's, it's really a platform that can do that uh, for a variety of different uh, neurological procedures. And another application that kind of uh, fell into our laps was using the same device, not only to do all the things I just mentioned, but also to deliver drugs into the brain or gene therapy. Got it. So a really true true platform type of technology. And we're recording this in early Q3 of 2023. I think based on your LinkedIn profile, it looks like you've been at it. Gosh, what is it? Seven? Is it seven years now? Let me uh, let me scroll back. I up think here. I officially joined October 2016. So yeah, this would be year seven. Yeah. Yeah. Seven year anniversary this, this month here. Um, so give us a sense kind of with that in mind, just to kind of set the stage for those listening. Um, Give us a sense kind of for where the company's at. I think you have a couple 5CK clearances under your belt for the diagnostic tools, I believe. But are you uh, are you expecting, where are you at in terms of, you know, clin reg and eventual, you know, c- commercialization of, of uh, devices? Sure. So you're, you're correct that we have two product lines that have purely diagnostic uh, clearances from FDA. These are 510K clearances. And those devices are actually, um, they've been commercialized. The, the high volume device that uh, is placed less invasively, uh, that was just launched in May of this year. We received approval late last year. Um, we were waiting for Zimmer Biomet, who's our distribution partner, uh, to actually complete some of the accessories that they needed to use our device with their robotic system, which literally precisely places the device where the neurosurgeon wants. So those those two devices um, or those two product families are already commercial. We've submitted uh, a 510K application to the FDA. It was in June of this year. Uh, we did receive feedback from them. And, and again, this was for our first combination diagnostic electrode that could also, when connected to uh, our proprietary hardware could perform an ablation. So again, the one device that's performing both diagnostic and therapeutic function. So we've heard back from FDA and we are planning a response you know, late this month, early next month. We're just waiting for some additional documentation. Our drug delivery system, 
is in development. We we are exploring the the opportunities uh, in terms of how to present this to FDA from a regulatory pathway. Uh, and then we have another project in development that is intended, again, to be a combination device where it's doing recording, but also providing chronic stimulation for patients that have back pain and quite frankly, really any any type of pain. So those that device is in development. It's a little bit further off uh, because those devices uh, obviously have uh, greater hurdles in terms of longevity uh, of use. You have to at least be able to demonstrate that you can record and stimulate over a five-year period. So th that submission um, is probably a, a few years away from occurring, but everything else is, you know, is either in process or uh, already cleared. Got it. Super, super helpful. Um, and the website um, for those, uh, for everyone listening, if you don't get a chance to to get to the full write-up on MedSider, we'll link to it there, of course, uh, but it's nmtc and the number one.com. So nmtc1.com. Great looking website, by the way. Uh, looking at looking at it now, really really cool. And you can learn a little bit more about the various platform itself, as well as the various uh, systems that uh, that Dave mentioned. So, with that said, let's let's uh, kind of transition maybe for the next 20, 30 minutes. Talk about some key functional areas, right? Um, and I think the first one on the docket is IP. Actually, before we get to I, IP, let's talk about development, early stage development. You sit on the boards of quite a few different startups. Have been have been around the block and. <laughs> um, <laughs> And you've seen you've seen a lot, right? That's the easiest way to, easiest way to say it. Getting getting through various iterations of a product in the early stages of a of a, of a, of a, of a startup, especially in the med tech space, is, is really really difficult because you're kind of trying to do that with with typically a very very limited amount of capital. So if you had to kind of sum up maybe your thoughts on how to how to best do that, right? Um, or mistakes to avoid, are there a few things that that come to mind? Uh, yeah, for sure. So I mean, limited capital is probably the phrase of the last few years, because I think every company, as you mentioned, every company I'm on the board of or or friends of mine that are in senior leadership roles, they're all literally struggling, um, you know, with the uh, with the same issues. So, um, you know, I, I think there are some things that um, that you can do uh, early on, you know, as you're trying to look to finance the company. Uh, so in, uh, we're based out of uh, Minnesota, and uh, most uh, major cities, you know, West Coast, um, uh, Midwest, and also on the East Coast, you know, have uh, a society or local societies that are really there to try to help early stage companies, uh, such as you mentioned. Um, and uh, for example, the one in Minnesota called uh, Medical Alley, it's there are. Uh, a number of large, medium size, and and startup companies that participate with that, but they're an organization that that you can go to uh, that has connections to early stage investors, institutional investors. Uh, they even um, have a portal that includes uh, people that might be looking for uh, employment. So you know, there's uh, there's a cost associated with hiring recruiters uh, to find good talent. It's always difficult to find uh, interested investors, especially when you're just trying to get things started. So, uh, you know, I guess my first point would be look to see what societies or organizations are in your area that may help, you know, companies, small businesses or companies that are just starting up. So that would be one. Um, something that I did um, that I found to be very useful was in my past was uh, I actually used LinkedIn 
uh, to target investment bankers, analysts. Um, I didn't have any network. I didn't have, uh, there's no training for these types of jobs. And I got onto LinkedIn to introduce myself to, I'll call it the financial community. And there were a number of relationships, you know, three or four that came out of that have been really helpful for me in my career, finding small pockets of money. Um, so that that's something you could do uh, as well. Social media has become more of a necessity now. You know, I was a guy that was not very active on social media. You know, as I said, I'm 59 years old. There was no social media when, you know, when, when I was uh, in high school and, and uh, in college. But, um, you know, uh, one of the guys that I was introduced to uh, who really kind of focuses on the use of social media, you know, said to me, he's like, listen, you know, you need to get your face out there. You need to get your story out there. People need to see you and you, you need to keep saying the same thing um, so that, uh, you know, you you're able to capture uh, people's interest. And I will tell you that while I was like very skeptical, you know, I, I have become much more active on social media and it's it's afforded me the ability to be introduced to physicians, some of which, you know, who are entrepreneurs themselves who are interested and in investing in uh, technology that's that's in their area, you know, as well as other um, uh, large corporations. So companies are always looking, large companies are always looking for uh, smaller companies to invest in, you know, in the hope that uh, they might that might be the next growth platform for them. Uh, so th that's another thing uh, that I've done. And I've also spent time um just doing some basic research on on companies that are in my space that may be competitors or or closely related, and I've looked to see who those companies' investors are and and targeted them uh, at least uh, you know in terms of my outreach you know based on the thought process that well they already like this space they're already invested in this space and sometimes they they may want to make a second bet in the space. So it doesn't always mean that if there is a direct competitor that they're invested in, that they they won't invest in you. Uh, uh, probably one of my last few pieces of uh, advice that I always have to remind myself is, um, you know, investors. Um, this this happens a lot on the private side, but investors will, you know, they're they're usually very complimentary of what you're doing. Everybody's got great ideas, but very few get invested in. And what I've seen happen with some uh, CEOs who maybe uh, have not had as much experience on the fundraising side, and this applies actually to public company CEOs as well, you know, they have a tendency if a, an investor or an, a firm tells them that, you know, they're interested that, you know, well, okay, they're interested. They normally make $5 million investments, so I can count on that. You know, I think you have to be very careful that no matter what any of these investors tell you, I don't care if it's a, uh, you know, a, a wealthy uh, individual uh, or an, a small institutional investor, you know, and, and until that check is uh, cleared in the bank, uh, you don't have the money. Uh, and then, you know, the last thing I would say is honestly, uh, you can't give up. I had this conversation with my children many times when they asked me how I've been able to raise as much money in, in their words, how I've been so successful. And I said to them, well, if you consider a success, one being successful in one out of 200 conversations, then, OK, I'm successful. But you can't give up in this game. 
most people are going to tell you your baby's not as pretty as you think it is or as beautiful as you think it is. And you just have to, you know, believe in yourself and believe in the story and not give up. Your, your comment around perseverance and, and, and grit and kind of pushing through it reminds me of something that Prague um, uh, mentioned recently, uh, published an interview with him. He's the CEO of Spinex. And he's like, you know, I, I, when I talk to other, other founders who are trying, trying to raise, raise funds, you know, I really, I really try to emphasize they need to talk to a lot of people. They're like, oh yeah, 20, 30 people. Is that enough? And they're like, no, 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 no. Like hundreds, hundreds of people. Right. Uh, and so, you know, you're, you're the batting percentage, you know, you, you just mentioned one out of one out of 200, you know, obviously doesn't look good, but that's sort of what it, what it, what it takes. Right. Um, um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and especially against this, in this fundraising environment, right. Within this macroeconomic uh uh, kind of climate. So completely, completely agree. When you think kind of on sticking to this fundraising topic, anything else that like has been especially helpful to you in, in raising capital over the years to fund early stage development, whether it's, you know, things that you think are super important when it comes to the actual deck that you're using or the process in general, anything else that you can, you can think of? Yeah. So, so that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I, I, I say to people, I'm, I'll kind of give you an overview of that and and then what how things have more or less changed. But it used to be way back in the Stone Age when I started this, uh, not this company, but just in this business, that what people you could you could raise money from uh, VCs or investors um, based on a concept. And then, you know, a short while later, it was, well, you had to have prototypes. and then you had to have animal data. and then you had to have, human data, and then you had to have clearance to sell, and then you had to have revenue. And I can tell you over the last 15, I don't know, 20 years, the discussions I see now are you have to be at break even. So what's what's happened is the appetite for risk, I don't care what investor you're talking about, has, uh, has been extended to, to more difficult milestones to hit. And, and people have said, well, you know, how do I raise money? You know, I, I need money, you know, to get to all those areas. Uh, so what, what happened as, as this was progressing was, you know, angel investors started to become, uh, they, they, in essence, picked up the slack from the risk levels that VCs used to be willing to take. So all, you know, all these states, you know, where there's new technology, there's angel investors that are willing uh, to go in and invest at an early stage. Now, some people say, "Well, yes, but you 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 know you have to give up a lot of the company to do that." Um, so I've seen uh, other companies try to approach strategics early. In some cases, that's successful. We were successful at Neuro One doing that with Zimmer Biomed. We did not have a final design of a product, but. We, we met w- what one of their strategies were and, and one of their growth initiatives. Uh, so they were willing to take um, literally a chance on us. But the truth is I've been most successful in developing networks. Um, so networks, you know, some, some of the early ones began using LinkedIn and then it was just introductions from people I would talk to, sometimes investors. And what happened is there are people out there that um, have... Uh, high net worth individuals who, whose money they manage who are willing to make, you know, smaller bets, 50,000, 100,000, you know, investments in companies that, you know, are at early stages. There's not a, you know, a formula for that. It's the formula is get out in front of as many people as you can, find the people that 
that have relationships with family-run offices or who manage uh, high net worth individuals. Uh, and you can find out who, uh, who those people are you know, by reaching out, whether it's investment bankers, uh, whether it's you know, colleagues or friends. It's, you know, you've, you've got to go out and, and talk to as many people as you can. But those are the people that are providing in, in my last company. That's how I financed it early on. And you'll think I'm crazy when I say this, but for the first two years, we were financing the company on a month to month basis. We had a small team. We would go out, um, you know, to uh, our network of investors. And we were literally saying, we need $100,000 this month. We need so, but I only got to that point because of the network of people that, you know, that I met um, that, that helped me to do that. Mm-hmm. I wish it was more simple and more straightforward uh, and money was, you know, uh, more easy to come by. But, um, you know, whether you're some people are trying to get um, uh, NIH grants, which, you know, you can do. It's difficult. It's time consuming. But the fastest way to get money for me has always been find a network, uh, find a person who has a network that you have a relationship with that can put you in touch with uh, wealthy individuals who are willing to help finance you in the early days. Hey there, it's Scott, and thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.